read rightly, you understand that God's plan of redemption centers on this individual. And he says, consider my servant. Behold my servant. He is one who is eminently trustworthy. You can give him your lives. You can bring to the servant your fears. You can lay at his feet your anxieties. You can surrender to the servant your deepest desires, and you can trust him. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Today we begin a new four-part series from Pastor Paul Twist, Behold My Servant, from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 42. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet introduces a servant song, one of four such songs found in Isaiah. We've asked Pastor Paul to join us today to help us set the tone for Isaiah, chapter 42. So, Pastor, in today's teaching, You have likened Isaiah's servant characterization to a priceless da Vinci masterpiece. We're going to need your help here to understand his significance for Christians. Thanks, Matt. Isaiah was writing over a period of 40 years, some 700 years before Christ. His writings are a combination of oracles and sermons, often warning the people, at the same time often trying to give to them comfort. In part one today, I talk about the glory of the servant. He is sent by the Lord. He is eminently trustworthy, and he will bring forth justice. Now, when we get to Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, he quotes from this text in Isaiah, and in chapter 12 of Matthew, he identifies the servant as Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So you see, God's Word, the Bible, is wonderfully balanced between Old and New Testament. We can find Christ throughout the Scriptures in both Old and New, and that's why the servant songs in the book of Isaiah are so relevant for Christians today. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Here now, part one of Behold My Servant. It is my privilege to open uh, God's Word with you. and. I wanted to spend the day in Isaiah, so both this morning and this evening, Lord willing, will be in the book of Isaiah, and specifically two of the servant songs. This morning, Isaiah 42, if you would turn there with me, Isaiah 42, and then this evening, Isaiah 49. This morning, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, the text reads, Behold, my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So reads the word of God. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. It is the most 
well-known, most visited, most written about, most sung about, most parodied work of art in all of history. The most well-known, most written about, sung about, most visited, most parodied work of art in all of history. It is, of course, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. If you have the opportunity to visit the Mona Lisa, you'll notice that it has a reputation for a reason. It is captivating. What few people know about the Mona Lisa is that it was painted over the course of 14 years. For the first three years, Da Vinci worked quite intently at it, and then he kept refining it over the course of the following years, and after 14, he finally declared it to be finished. And as you visit the Mona Lisa in the Louvre in Paris, you find this captivating work of art that you just can't take your eyes off. I've been twice, and apart from the fact there are many, many people in the room where it's hung and you have to fight to even see the painting, apart from the fact it's actually very small, it is captivating, it's profound, there's a depth to it that is very difficult to explain. One thing that has occurred to me is that quite possibly the depth of this painting comes by virtue of the fact that it was painted over such a long period. It's entirely different to a photograph. Think about how that painting came to be. Da Vinci would paint this woman one day and she would show up for the sitting in, in a mood, a particular mood that day, and, and that version of her would be taken into the painting. The next day she'd show up and now she's in a slightly different mood and that version of her gets captured in da Vinci's work. A few weeks pass, they have another sitting and now this woman is a different woman to the one that came a few weeks ago. Things have happened in her life, things have happened to her and she's in a different place again and that version of her gets captured in the painting. As the years go on, this process just continues. Every single time the woman is, in essence, slightly different to the previous version of herself, and each time she gets captured in the painting. It's entirely different to a photograph. And I think that, at least in part, is the reason why this painting is so profound, why it draws us in. The prophet Isaiah had his own Mona Lisa. The prophet Isaiah painted his own version of the Mona Lisa, not in a woman, but in a man, namely the one whom is called the servant, the servant. And the profundity of the servant comes in part by way of the fact that we see him four times in the book. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Undoubtedly, you know the last one, Isaiah chapter 53, the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, and maybe even the Old Testament, where we read of the servant's suffering. But then three times previous to that, in our text today, 42 and then 49 and 50, Isaiah gives us four perspectives by which we can see this individual. And it's not that he constructed and, and worked at the portrait over many, many, many years. He simply wrote the words that God gave to him. But another reason why we find this individual to be so profound is because he is glorious. In and of himself, the servant is glorious. We could spend our whole lives taking in the servant from the book of Isaiah and still have more to ponder. And as he comes to us this morning in chapter 42, what we find is an individual who is eminently trustworthy. Isaiah sets this individual forth to us as one who is to be trusted. 
And the reason that's important is because there was, at the time of writing in Israel, a crisis of trust. Yesterday I had the opportunity to spend some time with the men at the breakfast, and we looked at an earlier chapter, 31, in the book of Isaiah. It was really a precursory message to this one. And there, Isaiah was warning the people. He was saying, don't go down to Egypt. The issue was they were placing their trust in something other than God. They were looking at the Egyptians and their mighty army, their many chariots, their many horses, and they were placing their confidence in that rather than looking at the Lord. And the reason that Isaiah is so concerned with trust is because over the course of his ministry, a number of things happened that caused the people of Israel to question, to question their relationship with God. So during the course of Isaiah's long ministry, one of the most significant events was the disappearance of the northern kingdom into exile. The northern kingdom was swallowed up by the Assyrians. They were taken off into captivity. And immediately that raises questions for the southern kingdom, questions as to their security on the international stage, but questions as to their relationship with the Lord. Does God still care for us? As they apprehended that most likely they would be next, they're now questioning, does God still love us? What about all the promises that he made to us? What about the covenants? And so God raises up this man, Isaiah, and through him gives a message of trust. The book of Isaiah is one long sustained theology of trust. In the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 39, God shows what his plan is. Here's what I plan to do. Here's my, here's my plan for redemptive history. And the message is, you can trust me in this. In the second half of the book, 40 through 66, he shows the how. He lifts up the hood of the car and shows us the engine. This is how I plan to accomplish it. And in this, you can trust me. And central to that second half of the book of Isaiah is this individual, the servant. Read rightly, you understand that God's plan of redemption centers on this individual. And he says, consider my servant. Behold my servant. He is one who is eminently trustworthy. You can give him your lives. You can bring to the servant your fears. You can lay at his feet your anxieties. You can surrender to the servant your deepest desires and you can trust him. And I trust, as I explain that message, you see that there's a fairly straight line of application from the original audience of this text to us today. We really don't have to work that hard to understand how the servant song is to intersect our lives today. Our circumstances are very different to the ancient Israelites, and yet we all regularly fail to trust in the Lord. Every time that you give way to fear, anxiety, frustration, anger, it is an expression of a lack of trust in the Lord. And what God wants from us is our trust. He wants us to trust him, to depend upon him, to give to him our very lives. And so he sets forth the servant and he says to us today, behold my servant. You can trust him. So as we work through the text this morning, I want to just make five observations as to why the servant is so trustworthy. 
Five reasons why we can trust the servant. In him we find one who is trustworthy and in whom we can depend upon. And by that be greatly encouraged. The first reason why the servant is trustworthy is because simply he is sent by the Lord. We can trust the servant because, number one, he is sent by the Lord. Notice Isaiah begins speaking on behalf of God, simply saying, Behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now, in the first three words, there is much more going on than perhaps you would realize. The first thing to note is that this is not the first behold within this literary unit. If you look back at 41.11, we see there Isaiah saying, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Speaking there of the Israelites' enemies. Behold your enemies, they will be shamed, he says. Verse 24 of the same chapter, Behold, you are of no account, speaking about Israel's idols. You are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So this is the third behold within the unit, the first two showing the utter futility of Israel's enemies and idols. All that they would be tempted to set their gaze upon. They would go down to Egypt, their enemies, thinking that they could trust in them. They would put their hope in idols, thinking that there, there is security. And God says very plainly, don't trust in those things, but rather, by contrast, behold my servant. He says, my servant. Again, that's significant because there have been servants that have come before this one. Certainly, there have been other servants of the Lord. Behold my servant Moses. Behold my servant David. Behold my servant Isaiah. There have been other servants of the Lord, the difference being that this servant does not receive any qualifying name. Simply behold my servant. Before it was Moses, David, Isaiah. Now, behold my servant. That is not in any way to diminish him, but rather quite the opposite, to elevate him. To hold this one forth as the preeminent servant, the servant of all servants. You are to behold him because he is my special servant. All the previous servants in Scripture in some way have been preparing the way for this one. All the previous servants of Scripture have been reaching forward to this servant, and now God sets him forth and says, Behold my servant. He says, I uphold him. I sustain him. My hand is upon him. He cannot fail. He says he's my chosen one, my choice servant. I choose him above all others. And then lastly, in him my soul delights. The very soul of God delights in this individual. Now in Isaiah's day, it would not have been uncommon for an emissary, a messenger to come from a foreign nation. A messenger would regularly come from a foreign nation sent by a foreign king with some kind of agreement in his hands. Enter into an alliance with us. You give us some money, some taxes, and we'll protect you. We'll take care of you. That was a regular occurrence. And it may have been that the emissary, the messenger, was a trustworthy individual. It may have been. 
But you wouldn't know that intuitively. You would need to probe. You would need to ask some questions. And often, the servant's trustworthiness was bound up in the trustworthiness of the king who sent him. On whose behalf are you here, king so-and-so? Well, we know about him. We don't trust that king, and so we don't trust you. By contrast here, God sets forth his servant. This one has been sent of the Lord. And by that fact alone, if nothing else, you can put your trust in him. The gospel writers pick up on this very idea at the point of Jesus' baptism, especially in Mark's gospel. When you read through Mark, he loves to make connections back to the book of Isaiah. He's constantly showing us that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah, and it's at the point of his baptism in Mark's gospel that we hear a voice from heaven where God says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. He is alluding to this verse in the book of Isaiah, and he is saying to us at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, You can trust in this one. Now notice that message extends for the entirety of the servant's ministry. The servant in the book of Isaiah is best understood when you hold all four songs together. When you look at the four servant songs as one composite picture. And so we wonderfully receive this great news in 42.1, Behold my servant sent of the Lord. But just remember in a few chapters time, he will be the suffering servant. In just a few chapters' time in Isaiah 53, we will read of the one who grew up amongst us like a sap. He had no glory that we would esteem him. We considered him smitten and stricken, and yet he was crushed for our iniquities. He becomes the sacrifice for our sins, and yet God says you can trust him. In the same way, Mark, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, makes an allusion back to here and says, whatever happens here on out, you can trust in this one. When you read this gospel and things don't go according to our plan, they don't go the way that we would have written Jesus' ministry. He gets rejected, spat upon, beaten, and nailed to a cross. You can trust him. God hasn't lost control. The same principle extends to your life. In so much as you have put your faith in Christ, you're exhorted to pick up your cross and follow in his footsteps. And when things don't go according to plan, you can still trust in the servant. God has not lost all control over your circumstances. Rather, he's perfectly ordained them, and you can trust in the servant. Secondly, second reason why we can trust him is because he'll bring forth justice. Isaiah writes, I have put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. Now, that word justice has a broad meaning, even within the book of Isaiah. It can mean to levy a charge, to repay a debt. Most broadly, and I think the meaning here is simply to do that which is right. My servant will do that which is right. And therein we see his trustworthiness. Why? Because there is a very tight axis constructed within the Old Testament law that those who do right are trustworthy. By contrast, it is the workers of iniquity who should not be trusted. The law and the prophets etch out that theology for us continuously. So when you see someone who is doing that which is right, who is upholding the law of God, 
You can trust him. But notice, it's not merely that this one does what is right for himself, but that he leads others to do also what is right. God says he will bring forth justice to the nations. I think about the concept of leadership, what it is to lead others, to do a certain thing, for them to follow you. When I served in the Navy before coming over to America, it was there that I met one of the most incredible leaders that I've ever seen, most impressive men that I've ever met. I served for six years on a sardine tin, otherwise known as a submarine, and we were under the water for long periods of time, about 150 of us, and it was there, the captain of the submarine that I was on, that I encountered this man, an incredible, incredible leader. He was excellent in all that he did, and a professional. And what was curious was the nature of his influence. If you had walked around that submarine at any point, if you had observed any man on that submarine, you would have found that man to be doing exactly what was expected of him. Everyone on that submarine was fulfilling their job description precisely. You wouldn't have struggled to figure out who on this boat is the engineering officer, who on this boat is the logistics officer. Everyone was doing exactly what was expected of them because of the way in which this man conducted himself. Now think about the servant. God tells us there is a day coming when this man will reign on this earth such that every single person in every nation will be found to be doing what is right. There is a day coming when this servant will reign from his holy mountain and the nations will flock to him and there will be a righteousness that covers the earth. It pervades every single nation. He will shut out sin and his influence will be such that everybody does what is right. And for that reason, you can trust him and you can be greatly encouraged. Most likely, there are some that come here today suffering from some kind of injustice. Perhaps you come here this morning suffering based on some kind of injustice in the workplace. Some kind of injustice, maybe within your family. God knows about that. And he wants for you to look forward, to look at his servant to the day when this servant will reign on planet Earth and he will bring righteousness to the nations. You can set your hope in him. You can trust in this servant. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul today said, quote, Every time we give way to fear, anxiety, frustration, anger, it's an expression of a lack of trust in the Lord. And what God wants from us is our trust." End quote. What is the world like without trust? This past two plus years of the COVID pandemic has made many of us question everything we hear on the news. And that's just one facet of our troubling times. And more and more folks are saying, we don't know who we can trust. How do we know that? Well, let's just say that you're not buying into trusting Jesus. And that gets back to our original question, who are you going to trust? See, that's the sticky part of life. You may not want to completely trust in Jesus, but what are the alternatives? Few people claim to be completely trustworthy, and most all that do eventually fail. Except one, that is, and his word will come to pass. 
If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ and that he is worthy of your trust, and not only for heaven, but for life on earth, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast, and there a free archive of audio teachings on trusting Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't already attend the local church, you're always invited to come worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Listen, tomorrow it's part two in our new series, Behold My Servant. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.